Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. This will be Luke 20, verse 19 to 26. This is the word of the Lord. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Now, we're now in the midst of events, you remember, that take place in, during the, the days just before Jesus is, is crucified. Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 20, which gives us an account of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders questioning, but questioning particularly Jesus' authority. And we pick up the account in in verse 19 where we read of the violent actions of these chief priests and these scribes. They, the word of God says, tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And yet fearing the people, fearing that if they were to harm Jesus, the people would harm them, they backed off and decided instead to have Jesus followed. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous. Jesus, who knew the very thoughts of those men, was not ignorant of their scheming. Uh, I wonder what those men who went around, I wonder what their pretend righteousness looked like. Did they nod their heads at the right moments when Jesus was speaking? Did they put a a contemplative look on their face as they followed him around? Did they um, bow their heads in prayer even as they kept one eye open to make sure they didn't lose track of Jesus? Did they quote Jesus' words to others and talk about how wonderful he was? Did they wear the proper clothing? Or was their pretend righteousness simply demonstrated in that they were following Jesus, just following in the midst of the crowd? Whatever they did, they were making a show of righteousness and making a show just so that they could be near Jesus to spy, to spy on him. Think of the men these scribes and Pharisees provoked or even hired to do this work. Spying 
We want you to spy on the incarnate word of God. We want you to catch the word of God in some some sort of bad statement. They're hoping to catch Jesus making a, a scandalous, perhaps a blasphemous in their judgment statement, but they want to they want to get some sort of dangerous statement that would that they could then go and report to the governor. They want to be able to provoke the sword of the state. And today the in, in different ways, the same thing is going on with those who follow Jesus. I mean, think of this. Make an unpopular statement. Make a countercultural statement about homosexuality in your workplace. And guess what? You face not only firing, but also potential violations of the law. Hate crimes violations. Scribes and the elders of the legislature of the state of Iowa and their Civil Rights Commission have made laws recently so that they might catch pastors and church leaders in some sort of statement. This happened just this past week. Uh, Reading from an article online, it says this, the guidelines, they published a series of guidelines for churches, for organizations, including churches, The guidelines published in a public accommodations provider guide to Iowa law contain the unusual, the usual non-discrimination catch-all phrases, noting that a public accommodation commits an act of gender identity discrimination when it, to take a few examples, intentionally uses names and pronouns inconsistent with a person's presented gender, refuses access to preferred bathrooms or indirectly advertises that a transgender person is unwelcome or not acceptable. Incredibly, the document contains a frequently asked question section directed to churches, which reads this way. Does this law apply to churches? And their answer is sometimes. Iowa law provides that these protections do not apply to religious institutions with respect to any religion-based qualifications when such qualifications are related to a bona fide religious purpose. Where qualifications are not related to a bona fide religious purpose, churches are still subject to the law's provisions. For example, a child care facility operated at a church or a church service open to the public which is all of them, right? Which is all of them. This writer goes on, it's unclear to me how a branch of the Iowa state government has determined that a church service open to the public does not have a bona fide religious purpose, but there it is. Right, so... So that... They're policing now the churches to catch them in some sort of infelicitous dangerous statement, okay? Just as these scribes and Pharisees are doing with Jesus at this critical moment in his life. So there's nothing new under the sun. As pagans treated Jesus, so they treat his followers. They're attempting to catch Jesus in a statement. And if they do, then they have 
a justification for arresting him and delivering him to the rule and authority of the governor. Now, remember, they've just attempted to make a mockery of the authority of Jesus. That's what the previous passage dealt with. They wanted to point out that his, his authority was nothing. And now, look who they're respecting. They're respecting the civil authorities, these occupying forces of their nation, right? These, these, the Roman government. Now getting a, a little more provocative, they ask Jesus this, this question. They say, they say, teacher, we know that you, uh, we know that you te- speak and teach correctly. And you, you aren't partial to anybody. But you, you teach the way of God in, tr- in truth. I, I'm trying to make a point by the tone. This is godless flattery. This is godless flattery. It's excessive and insincere praise, especially especially to promote their own interest, right? The scribes and chief priests and their henchmen do not believe anything they've just said to Jesus. They call him teacher and they are they refuse to be taught by him. They call they think Jesus has a devil. They think Jesus is a blasphemer. They, they've, they, they've just been questioning his authority. And now, and now the scribes and, and, and chief priests people come to Jesus and say that he speaks so correctly. And that he, he's not a brown noser. Right? And that he teaches the way of God in truth. And, and all they're trying to do is they're trying to butter up Jesus. They are smooth talkers who seek to gain an advantage over the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, always beware of those who come to you with excessive praise. Always beware of those who come to you with excessive praise, um, with honeyed words, as one of the commentators said, honeyed words. Right? You and I know from our own experience, all of us know from our own experience, how we often use words to soften people up so that we can gain an advantage over them. And excessive praise is a way many people attempt to put you in their pocket. And those who are unprepared, right, those, or not just those who are unprepared, those who delight in that sort of, give me some more love. Those who, who are vain and love praises will fall under the power of a flattering tongue. Uh, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps, says Proverbs. There's a, there is proper praise, there is proper commendation, there is appropriate encouragement, 
But then there is also excessive praise, and there is also what, you know, what we call flattery, and it's a tool used by those who wish to gain an advantage. So, so let your praise and let your encouragement be appropriate and not excessive. And then be prepared to guard yourselves from the lips of the flatterer. Because you'll do almost anything if somebody strokes your ego. Jesus, though, is impervious to their flattery being righteous. He is not swayed. He is not melted, right? He doesn't let down his guard in any way. And after their butter dripping, uh, after their um, coating of the, uh, the popcorn with the butter, Uh, They asked Jesus a question, desiring to trap him now. He softened up. Let's now ask him a question. Is it lawful for us, us Jews, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, first, what's the tax being spoken of here? Here's what Hendrickson says. He says this is... uh, The tribute to which the present passage refers was a poll tax, which after the deposition of Archelaus, 86, was collected by the procurator from every adult male in Judea and was paid directly into the imperial treasury. So it was just a a, a head tax for every adult male that went directly into the, the coffers of Rome. Jesus, it says, detected their trickery. What was their trickery? What, what were they trying to do? How is it that this question put Jesus between a rock and a hard place? Well, if he answers, yes, it's lawful, he will offend the Jews there who despise the occupying Roman government, these nationalists among the Jews. Of these people... Uh, Adersheim writes, there was a strong party in the land which not only politically but religiously, many of the noblest spirits would sympathize, which maintained that to pay the tribute money to Caesar was virtually to own his royal authority and so to disown that of Jehovah, who alone was Israel's king. They would argue that all the miseries of the land and people were due to national unfaithfulness. All the miseries they were undergoing now was because we were unfaithful. So in other words, if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay this tax to Caesar, he would be throwing those zealots, these nationalists, under the bus and disappointing them in his potential messiahship. And if he answers, no, it's not lawful, Very simply, he's commanding rebellion against the governing authorities. Which is exactly what they want him to say. So they can get him arrested. So how does he answer them and and what can we learn from his answer? Does he give them a straightforward yes or no answer? No, he doesn't. He asks for a denarius. This is a Roman coin. And then asks his own question of them. Whose likeness, whose image, whose icon 
and inscription, epigraph, does it have? On that coin was the image, was an image of Caesar, an image of his, his head. And so they respond to him saying, Caesar's. And then Jesus said to them these words that we quote all the time. We quote all the time when we, when we want a justification for obeying governing authorities. Right? We say, he says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Now, I read that in a particular way because I think that's where the emphasis falls. We'll come to that. Has Jesus given a yes or no answer? He has not, even though most, when they read this passage, say his statement gives an affirmative answer. Right? Pay the tax. Pay the tax. But the reaction of the examiners shows us that his answer is not that simple. Right? It says, and they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. If, his, if this was a simple yes, their response just doesn't make any sense. If he had answered yes, it is legitimate to pay those taxes, they wouldn't have been flummoxed by what he said. So how is it that this is not a yes, you should pay taxes answer? Well, here's Doug Wilson's answer. And in quoting Doug Wilson, I'm not sanctioning all of his teaching. Okay? I loathe his sacramentalist leanings. But on issues of church and state, you should read him. Here's what he says about this passage. This is helpful. They were trying to trap Jesus with a question of tax policy, and Jesus answered by pointing to two kinds of coins. One coin had the image of Caesar on it, and it was therefore lawful in principle to give that back to Caesar. That which has Washington's image on it may be sent to Washington. That which has Federal Reserve note on it may be mailed back to the Federal Reserve. But Jesus did not just say that they should render Caesar's image back to him. He said that something should be rendered back to God also. And what would that be? The answer is that we are coin from God's mint. We are coin from God's mint. We are created in the image of God, and we are therefore forbidden to render ourselves to Caesar. We give one thing to Caesar and another thing to God. We may not render all of it to Caesar. It is prohibited, and they marveled at him. Now this creates a, a line that must not be crossed, and it also creates a host of of questions about that line. This is still Wilson. He goes on, he says, we live in a time when the ruling elite formally denies that we are in fact created in the image of God. The ruling elites deny that we're created in the image of God, right? There's no coin imprint on us of God's. We're just membranes and proteins. That is considered by them to be a legal and jurisdictional irrelevance. 
And so it is that they reserve for themselves the right to seize property, to ban the sale of big gulps, and to fine Christian photographers who don't want to record the joy and laughter of a perverse union. The issue is not the dollar amount. The issue is the claim of jurisdiction implicit in the ruling. What are they saying it means? Is it lawful for Christians to drive on a toll road, He's, he, he asks. Can they throw two quarters in the basket and drive on with a clean conscience? Sure. But what if the existing authorities reduced the price in one way and raised it in another way? Suppose the toll was just a quarter. But a sign over the toll booth said, Artemis Turnpike. And you had to say, Hail Artemis, to the sullen occupant of the booth before depositing your quarter. Is, is that how much your conscience costs a quarter? The issue is not the amount. The issue is what it means. And because we live in a culture that formally denies that we are created in, the, in God's image, we ought to be having many more clashes than we are. Many more. Matthew Henry, to go in a completely different direction, puts it this way. It is God only that has authority to say, My son, give me your heart. God only who has that authority. He says Caesar, civil government, has authority, but he does not have all or ultimate authority. It is appropriate to give to Caesar what is appropriate, but never can you give to Caesar what only belongs to God. The image and likeness of civil government is on a nation's money. The image and likeness of God is on the people. The government has a claim to the resources. God has a claim on the souls. And never once should government make a claim on souls. That is what is known as statism. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to fall down and worship the image of gold, according to the command of King Nebuchadnezzar, they were saying, the king, the Caesar, the civil government has this much authority and no more. In other words, the state has jurisdiction over what it can put its image on, but God has jurisdiction over what he prints his image on. Therefore, government has authority as his agent, but may, may not usurp God's place as the savior and ruler of image bearers. I mean, think of it from this perspective. What was Caesar claiming? He was claiming divinity. And in a sense, Jesus is rejecting that, that, that claim by saying what he says here. He is limiting Caesar's jurisdiction to the wee tiny little world of money. But God is still God. And he has a claim on the whole man, body, soul, and mind. And if the two come into conflict, brothers and sisters, you know where your allegiance, or rather where your duty lies, don't you? 
Now think of it from this perspective. Roman, again, let me dig in a little bit on this. Stick with me. Think of it from this perspective. Roman culture during the time of the early church was pluralistic and polytheistic, the Caesar being just one among many divine. This pluralism works well, but only when Christians aren't around, right? Roman emperors of the time of the early church accused Christians of being what? Anarchists. Because they would not acknowledge the divinity of Caesar and claimed they had only one king, Jesus. And so they were understood to be unbelievers and anarchists. An exclusive claim is not welcome in a pluralistic society. Are we learning that today? Are we learning that? Now listen to this description of the Roman theory. From, uh, this is from Workman's persecution, persecution in the early church. By Roman theory, and, and just think of this as our government. By Roman theory, the state was the one society which must engross every interest of its subjects. Religious, social, political, and humanitarian. With the one possible exception of family. There was no room in Roman law for the existence, much less the development on its own lines of organic growth, of any corporation or society which did not recognize itself from the first as a mere auxiliary of the state. The state was all and in all, the one organism with a life of its own. Such a theory the church as the living kingdom of Jesus could not possibly accept either in the first century or in the 20th century when he was writing this book. I mean, that reads like a description of 21st century American Statism. We live in a state that is, did you notice that of the Romans? He said the Roman government, the Roman state claimed jurisdiction over everything but one thing, the family. What is being militated against today more than anything else? The family. Even that is being taken away. But the point is this, the state has its proper jurisdiction and that is not as a stand-in or replacement for God and his authority over man. Pay your taxes, yes, but do not bow the knee to Caesar. And if they define paying your taxes as an act of worship, bowing the knee to Caesar, then don't pay your taxes. Again, here's how Calvin puts it. Every man, according to his calling, ought to perform the duty which he owes to men. That children ought willingly to submit to their parents and slaves to their masters. That they ought to be courteous and obliging towards each other according to the law of charity. Provided that God always retains the highest authority to which everything that can be due to men is, as we say, subordinate. The amount of 
The amount of it, therefore, is that those who destroy political order are rebellious against God, and therefore that obedience to princes and magistrates is always joined to the worship and fear of God. But that, on the other hand, if princes claim any part of the authority of God, we ought not to obey them any further than can be done without offending God. You know, perhaps... I mean, this is the biblical, not the Republican argument for limited government, right? This passage is important. This passage, this statement of Jesus is so important today, is it not? When a state is beginning to remove liberties, right? Liberty, liberties of speech, liberties of association, liberty of religion, it is overstepping its bounds in making religious claims, It is asking for devotion that is only due to God. It is proclaiming itself to have ultimate jurisdiction over those who are imprinted with the image of God. It is proclaiming itself to have more than delegated authority, a defined authority from God, but to be God itself, demanding an allegiance that competes with the God of the Bible. And Jesus says, Whoa! Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. That's how he puts it. The emphasis is not on the first part of this. I mean, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we, we don't know rightly how to think about the, the day and age in which we live, Father, but you are not ignorant of it, having ordained it. Lord, we, we begin to get confused and mealy-mouthed about authority, the proper authority of the state, your proper authority, overarching and overall authority. But Father, I pray and ask that you would give us clarity of mind and that we would always be ready to bow our knees to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and to him alone and to respect the proper and limited authority of our governing officials, to be good citizens insofar as they reflect the position that you have given them in your providence. Help us to know what to say. Help us to know when to act and when not to act. Help us to know in these days and years ahead what to do, but most of all, Father, to be faithful to you our sovereign king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.